apart from direct partisans, I, I think that most observers would accept that there's a problem with the platitudes to which sort of neo-Foucauldian styles of argument have given rise, and to the extent to which um, these have become accepted as simple truths. But I, I would say, you know, on the contrary, knowledge is not power. Uh, social relations are not comprehensively and exclusively reducible to power relations. Uh, and power, in the conventional sense, is itself uh, uh, potentially a resource that we may have to use. listener and welcome to another installment of new work in intellectual history we are produced by the institute of intellectual history at the university of st andrews and i'm your host for this episode robin mills we are joined today by richard burke hello richard how are you doing hi great thanks richard is professor of the history of political thought and a fellow of king's college at the university of cambridge and he is the author of the recently published hegel's world of revolutions which came on princeton university press back in late october 2023 now, normally, we would jump straight into talking about our guest's book, but as many listeners will already be aware, we recently learned of the passing of John Grenville Agar Pocock, a few months shy of his 100th birthday. Now, Pocock was a towering figure in the history of political thought, and it's not quite the moment for us now to try and detail his many achievements and celebrate an academic life very, very well lived. But Richard, with apologies for putting you on the spot a little bit, I wondered if you could give us a... Uh, a summary is not quite the right word, but, you know, an assessment of Pocock's contribution to our field. Yes, well, a bit. I, I can say something about it. Um, I would say, to begin with, that nearly every historian of political thought of my generation, more or less, certainly, say, David Armitage and Richard Wapmore and Jennifer Pitts, whom I saw this weekend, and actually we were speaking about Pocock, and probably to my, my colleague, Annabelle Brett. I'm quite sure that... Um, we, you know, um, in, individually uh, would want to claim that above all in our early careers, probably Pocock was an outstanding example of scholarly achievement, a sort of monument. I would describe him as a sort of monument, really. The the older generation, perhaps not those immediately above, but um, figures now in their 80s, that generation was perhaps more competitive or as one might say, vying or disposed to stake out its own territory in relation to Pocock, and therefore were somewhat more dissenting, but always still, uh, to some extent, I think, uh, reverential. Nonetheless, to those of us in our 50s, so as I'm saying, the younger generation, Pocock was a more uncomplicated exemplar. You know, we, we, we read his books simply as, you know, masterful contributions. That, that, of course, doesn't mean that they were uncritically received, but it does mean that in their respective fields, if we think about some of those fields, you know, Pocock or Machiavelli or Harrington or, or Gibbon, or in my case, I suppose, especially um, Burke, one had to start out from those um, engagements, which says a lot. I think it's true that we're still appraising the impact of Pocock's scholarship, one thing laterally that I've been interested in, and this, I suppose, takes us on to our discussion today, is um, the Hegelian provenance, as I see it, of perhaps the boldest argument in Pocock's career, the argument that is associated with the Machiavellian moment and its 
aftermath. In other words, the idea of two contrasting and discontinuous, um, but in equally incompatible styles of politics uh, as underpinning the traditions of European and Anglophone political thought. So um, as Pocock had it, these traditions were on the one hand, a so-called civic or civic humanist or republicanist, Republican, whatever phrase you want to use, these different, one of these names for a given discourse. Uh, and on the other hand, a rights-based or as he called it, a jurisprudential tradition. So as Eric Nelson, I think rightly observed in his own first book, this um, in a way highly stylized ideal typification basically um derives unwittingly i'm quite sure but it does nonetheless derive from from hegel's account of athenian and roman political consciousness as traced in the phenomenology of spirit and elsewhere so um i think pocock had some contact with german traditions of scholarship via hans baron and and felix gilbert most obviously but he largely stayed clear of what he doubtless thought of as the vague immensities of the Germans. So I think this points to his singular originality, really, in, in formulating his own thesis, or that thesis at least, more or less unaided. Uh, but perhaps <clears throat> also there's a, a cautionary note for all of us about trying to circumvent Hegel. I would, of course, want to say that the scale of Hegel's intervention um, was so enormous that it simply can't be bypassed in either historical or philosophical terms, without inadvertently falling back on his conceptions. That's the sort of um, the cautionary tale of using, but not consciously using Hegel. And they're my, they're, they're my immediate reflections on Pocock, at least. Brilliant, thank you. So the Institute will be running events in 2024, and I know there are also things going on in Cambridge, and I presume elsewhere in the world too. Obviously, as Richard has already uh, said, many of the people involved with the Institute here at St Andrews were friends and colleagues and students of Professor Pocock, and she's both in the direct sense and also in that sense of learning with uh, many works. And uh, yeah, if, if you're around uh, in Scotland, I hope you may consider joining us in celebrating and commemorating his life and work. So there's no easy segue to go from that into a um, more detailed discussion of Richard's book. So we'll just uh, jump ahead, jump in. Okay, let's do the basics first. And Richard, you're going to have to hold my hand for much of this, I think. Um, who was Jörg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel? And very briefly, what was his contribution to the history of political thought? Why should we care? Okay, well, well Hegel was born in Stuttgart in the Duchy of Württemberg at the time in 1770. He, he was educated at a humanistic uh, gymnasium, relevant because the training is in Latin and Greek. And then subsequently at his university level, if you like, at uh, Tübingen, in fact, in a theological seminary. After graduating, he uh, spent some time in, in um, Bern and then in Frankfurt. And I suppose in that context, it's worth mentioning that he, he began his career really as a, as a man of letters. That's, that's to say a public educator, or as the phrase was in German at the time, a Volkserzieher, a sort of popular educator. Um, but then he shifted into philosophy, especially after his move to Jena around about 1801, and partly under the influence of uh, an erstwhile fellow student um, at Tübingen, um, Schelling. 
Now, from then on, Hegel began, I would say, transforming philosophical thought, ultimately radically reconceiving the disciplines of metaphysics, logic, theology, aesthetics, and political philosophy. So there's much to say about Hegel's impact in all of these fields, but since you're asking mainly about um, uh, political philosophy, um, I'd say Hegel's intervention might be seen as a critical intervention developed along perhaps three axes. And I'll, I'll just um, mention these in sort of very broad um, outline-ish terms. First of all, he was critical of what one might describe as the Hobbes-Hume tradition, um, which resolved value or normativity, as we might say, into anthropology, a theory of human nature, and viewed human nature in turn as driven, broadly speaking, by self-interest and self-regard. Uh, so aspects of this survive into Rousseau um, also, as we know. Hegel, secondarily, was critical of Rousseau's doctrine of the state, since Rousseau's theory of the, the general will or the volonté générale regarded um, the individual person willing generally, or let's just call it the moral will, Rousseau regarded this as self-governing or autonomous, whereas moral consciousness for Hegel was in truth a product of history and society, a product of what he called um, Zittlichkeit, or if you like, integrated social and ethical life, some, something like that. So um, Hegel was interested in grounding the abstractions in Rousseauian thought in history and society, is basically what I'm saying. And finally, relatedly, um, he was critical of um, the moral worldview inaugurated by Kant. That, that's, in fact, Hegel's phrase, the moral worldview, die moralische Weltanschauung. Um, and he, he, Hegel was, of course, immersed in Kantianism, but, but you know, directed all his intellectual energy at, you know, revising and improving Kant. And so he, he, he um, therefore orientated himself against Kant, first of all, um, because he believed that Kant, if you like, pitted moral agency against practical desire. You know, there's a sort of this antithesis, you know, one of the Kantian dualisms, really. And secondly, Hegel believed that Kant had isolated morality from politics. So one starts in morality um, as a sort of a critical uh, framework um, for then engaging with politics. But for Hegel, one begins in the midst of things and therefore... Uh, that move was problematic. So that's a way of thinking about his um, sort of critical engagement and the, the the sort of contribution he made by sort of fitting him into these traditions and thinking about how he took issue with them. It really, I think, in sort of certainly potent, but also really very fundamental ways. One of the interesting things then um, about... Uh, we'll start by starting. We're going to delve into the book more now by <laughs> focusing on the end. So, part three, you sort of you survey or analyze changes to Hegel's reputation um, across the course of the twentieth century, and he goes. It starts with. Well, I'll let you you flesh all of this out, but it's interesting how at the beginning of the twenty first century, he has very little intellectual standing compared to what you might have had in the 19th century uh, and also the beginning of the 20th. That there's something, it is quite normal to know very, very little about Hegel 
I would point possibly to myself as a case in you know, a case of this, um, despite being immersed in the, the subject of the history of political thought or political uh, thought more generally. Can you tell us what happens to Hegel over the course of the 20th century? And we'll come back at the end to the you know the significance of this, but just to yeah, give us an overview of what yeah, what happens to him. Well, I think what you're saying is uh, is is true. That's to say, in a way, it is remarkable um, that if one thinks of the history of political thought in particular, um, you know, the standard, if you like, canonical figures, you know, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Rousseau, Smith, Hume, and so on and so forth, um, have maintained a very secure footing in academic discussion over the past few generations but but not so with with hegel and there, there are various reasons for that 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 i'll come to but just one qualification it's not of course quite right to say that no attention is paid to is paid to hegel there are very major pieces of um scholarship devoted to his thought uh, i mean za pelchinski in the 1970s was an important hegel scholar charles taylor you know contributed very significantly to reviving Hegel with his 1975 book. Other American philosophers or emigre philosophers like Eric Kaufman had an interest in um, in Hegel. And since I mentioned Pelachinsky, who was based in Oxford, um, also Leszek Kalakowski, um, because he was immersed in a sort of Marxist tradition, also in Oxford, um, sustained an interest in Hegel. More recently, figures like Robert Pippin and, and Terry Pinkerton and Robert Brandom have also um, importantly been involved in reviving the fortunes of Hegel. But the most recent interest, I think, has emphasized epistemology and ontology, not exclusively, but but less uh, political philosophy. Even, um, even uh, Wood, who's written a very important book on, on Hegel's ethical theory, a classic work really is still emphasizing more the moral rather than the political theory. So there is a certain um a certain decline in engagement with Hegel as a political uh, thinker. Um so there is, I think, a deep cultural suspicion of, of Hegel in our time, and this has roots in the early 20th century. Um, um but it should be said that uh, the 20th century began really with a renaissance in Hegel scholarship. So figures like Diltai and Hermann Noll and Meinecke, who might be more familiar to this audience, and Meinecke student, uh, Franz Rosenzweig, they were all interested in Hegel and were responsible for a tremendous revival in terms of textual scholarship, but also his relevance as a figure in intellectual history. Then, of course, um, you know, in the following generation, um, many figures regarded Hegel as playing a major role in, in social philosophy. I mean, certainly Lenin um, commented um, importantly in his manuscript of um, Hegel's logic, but also Kozhev and Lukács and Sartre and Beauvoir and Marcuse were all living in the sort of slipstream of the sort of scholarly revival and um appropriate appropriating him or arming him as, as a sort of relevant voice in, in the field of political thought but overlapping with this if you like revival th there was a major turn against he hegel undoubtedly and I, I associate that above all with, with heidegger adorno perhaps surprisingly for some people and um 
maybe most obviously or, or most famously in in an anglophone context Karl Popper uh, Popper really made Hegel an enemy of science and logic I mean uh, that's how he saw it and therefore a high priest of despotism that's really the the sort of message of the open society and its, and its enemies I mean only uh, Wilfred Sellers um, the North American mid-century political sorry um, philosopher not a political philosopher but you know an epistemologist really only he sought to retrieve Hegel for the analytic tradition if we're going to call it an analytic uh, tradition meanwhile the Heidegger Adorno axis cast suspicion on let's just say the doctrine of the absolute and regarded the dialectic as spuriously forcing intelligibility and reconciliation and in Adorno's case spuriously forcing a sort of rapprochement with, with the powers that be so there is this uh, undoubted turn against um, Hegel in, in that generation and with those figures. Um, this criticism, that's to say, this view of Hegel as an, enforcing a sort of doctrine of totality, to use that phrase, was equally advanced in the 1960s by, by students of Jean Hippolyte. Uh, I don't mean devoted students, but people who had been taught Hegel by Hippolyte, and that includes figures like um, Foucault and Derrida. Um, now, um, their ideas, people like Foucault and Derrida, uh, proved to have an enormous influence in the US academy. There's no doubt about that. First of all, via literature and latterly, I think, in political theory, a sort of postmodern mood or um, latter day cynicism, or however one wants to describe it, became pervasive as a staple of really left academic criticism. And in the process, Hegel was constructed as a sort of patron of rationality and absolute value. And these uh, were cast in turn as engines uh, of oppression. So it's it's clear that this latest myth of Hegel, what, you know, the, the Hegel I've just described, which is um, nothing to do with Hegel, is rather based on an extraordinary misunderstanding of his work. Um, when most of these views were imported from France or, or even Italy via France, via Germany, if you want to give a full genealogy, often servicing the resurrection of Nietzsche. I mean, that's partly what happened. And this genre is observable in uh, Deleuze and Klosowski and Kristeva and Agamben and those, you know, familiar um, figures. But the, but the intrinsic difficulty of Hegel's prose has made these, to my mind, problematic views difficult to dislodge especially in um, a fashion-driven and more recently complacently ideologically inflected academic culture, such as has gained a certain momentum in the human humanities in the US. So um, so I think it's, it's important to reverse this tendency just in the interest of uh, accurate scholarship, um, but the view has become very entrenched for the reasons that I've hopefully clearly enumerated. That's fantastic. So one of the things I took this book to be doing, uh, one of the many things I took this book to be doing was to encourage us to take Hegel seriously again, to go back to him and, and read him carefully. Uh, and the central concept that you focus on is that of world revolutions. Could you give us an overview for the, the you know, the educated non-expert listener that I, that, um, many of us will be. Could you give us an overview of what Hegel meant by world revolution before we jump into some of the more specific examples and then perhaps why that was your chosen focus, please? 
Yes, Robin. Well, Hegel, in a way, a useful way to think about him is as combining philosophy and history. Um, in, a, in a way, the inspiration for this was uh, Montesquieu, who, you know, developed, say, um, philosophy of politics, but via a world history. So there is a, a precedent. And Hegel was enormously attracted to Montesquieu and discussed him at various points in his work. He's not a Montesquieuian, but it shows there is um, there is um, some kind of precedent. A core element in Hegel is the idea of transition. Uh, transition or movement is, above all, and most obviously, key to the dialectic. So this includes both um, um, historical transitions and logical transitions in his um, logical works, but I'm going to deal with historical transitions. Um, those changes uh, by which one world succeeds another, simply. Hegel was substantially a student of these transformations. Uh, and I think a, a modern style of scholarship thinks of 18th and 19th century, especially 19th century thinkers, as engaging with earlier and um, other parts of the world in an attitude of, um, you know, looking at them to oh en bas or um, sort of exploitatively. Um, I think this is, you know, the, I think this is just simply a mistake. And in actual fact, figures like, like Hegel and many others discovered other worlds with tremendous fascination and um, certainly due respect, um, which doesn't mean that they thought that all previous existing worlds were equally valuable, but it, he did think that they were all valuable. Um, so he was interested in, um, you know, um, transitions from one stage of world consciousness, if you like, or, or system of values, we, we might call it, to another, moving from, from China to India to Persia um, to Egypt. And by, by the way, of course, there's a revival at the time in scholarly interest in all these areas. I mean, Egypt was... Um, conquered by Napoleon in Hegel's own time. And many, you know, Egyptian art artifacts were transported around Europe. I mean, Hegel certainly visited, the, visited these, not, 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 not least at the, um, at the um, main, you know, um, Berlin Museum of Antiquities. So he was enormously interested in these things. Um, but of course, you know, uh, his, his engagement is, is, um, is limited, but that's not to say it's not fascinating, which which it certainly is. Uh, above all, probably with with Egypt and and Greece and Rome, partly because his training is, of course, as a, as a classical philologist. He was also interested in religious transformations, the passage from Judaism to Christianity, Islam, the Reformation, uh, but also modern political ones: the move from feudalism, absolutism, uh, enlightenment, revolution, and and the rise of what you might call moral um, conscience. So all, all of these um, revolutions appear at the time as sort of uh, moments of sudden rebirth. But for Hegel, actually underlying these shock moments was a process of complex and protracted struggle. So there are total transformations, um, you know, like the, like the birth of a human, you know, suddenly something utterly different has happened. Um, but in a way, that's an appearance under under underneath that eruption. There is a steady process uh, of of development. Um, so Hegel is interested in charting those those developments. And one way into his philosophy is to understand 
what those developments were and and what triggered them. Now, uh, his his key interest is not in you know the changing weather, but rather the process of value transformation across these time frames. Um, and this, of course, registered across various domains: science, art, religion, philosophy, society. They're all changing as a totality. In fact, that that's the meaning of the much abused Hegelian phrase totality. These things like the art, the science, the religion, and so on of a period sort of hang together much in the same way as you might think of Montesquieu's um, laws as hanging together with the spirit of the laws. They form a totality and interconnected whole. That's to say um, freedom of inquiry in science is surely related to certain political constitutional changes. You know, so um, of course, there's work to be done on, on on figuring out the interconnections between these quasi-autonomous do domains, but they do relate uh, as a totality. Anyway, that gives you a sense of you know the range and depth of um, Hegel's interest in these um, various um, uh, periods and their um, intellectual content, if you like. Um, Hegel wasn't a materialist, and he didn't believe in history from below. Uh, for those two reasons, uh, or additional two reasons, he's fallen out of favor with historical scholarship. Um, I mean, of course, he would say the movement of matter is not what's made world history. Um, and it would be very hard to show that movement of matter is what has made world history. A closer look at Marx would have him um, in greater alignment with Hegel than uh, Marx might have might have liked, um, for instance. And it's not that Hegel is against, you know, events from below. Obviously, events do happen from below, but the antithesis between above and below just doesn't really work for him. I mean, is, is Rousseau above or below by comparison with uh, the reigning political class in Europe um, in the mid to late 18th century? And so on. In any case, um, the sort of pieties of historiography um, post the late 60s don't um, comport well with Hegel, but I, I think he's got valuable and forceful reposts to those um, um, to those presuppositions. Now, I think it's important to say that um, the Hegelian transformations or world revolutions are not structured teleologically, despite um, the assumptions or certain assumptions that are pervasive within the literature. Also, he's not talking about a linear development, but rather a, precisely a dialectical one uh, in which the end is not evident in the beginning. There is no overarching architect or planner, and there is no direct um, pathway from A to Z. Instead, there is a cunning of reason, the um, list der Vernunft, um, which really just means that despite itself, human desire by an indirect and actually also brutal process. There's no happy, clappy celebration of um, the dynamics of world history. You know, it's, it's an, uh, an, an ugly field of slaughter. Uh, but nonetheless, um, this unintending, uh, striving um, humanity, if you like, uh, discovered a more inclusive vision of human value and entitlement in the process. But it's not that there's a direct route to that outcome. It's not that there was a plan which evolved that outcome. And if that's not the outcome, one has to finally say, um, one has to make very clear about what elements of our existing world is being rejected in the name of what superannuated world. And um, that's obviously a trying 
um, challenge that Hegel is putting to us, but I think it's one that we ought to seize rather than dodging uh, by, um, if you like, protesting um, in juvenile fashion against all aspects of the inherited world. Okay, fantastic. Part one of the book focuses on the Kantian revolution. Could you tell us something about what that revolution meant to Hegel? What role Christianity played? I'm adding another one now, Christianity and also freedom, if we can. Uh, yeah, what did uh, Hegel take from Kant? And then what did he wish to improve upon? I got the sense that he thought that Kant was not, not very historically minded, shall we say, not very sensitive to... Um, historical change? Tricky one. I mean, Kant did obviously have a philosophy of history, um, but um, it was a philosophy of history which viewed history as a sort of, um, as an infinity um, to which human beings were advancing but would never arrive. So um, Hegel was influenced by that, but his view is nonetheless different. Uh, I would say... Um, Hegel's view of history is as follows, that history, in a way for him, has witnessed the emergence of morality from out of custom. It's not unlike Rousseau's second discourse in that sense, right? Humanity has struggled out of its sort of more animal capacities of immediate sensibility towards developing what Hegel would call its own rationality, but what Rousseau did call its capacity for moral consciousness. So uh, there is an analogy there. And um, Hegel was not averse to using the phrase perfectibilité himself. So there is a certain uh, alignment. Now, this emergence of morality as against just tradition or trust or custom has been a great humanizing uh, process. But it's one that was also fraught with danger. So morality or, or conscience is a dissident human capacity. I mean, it, it's it's critical of reality. You know, when we consult our, our morality, we're consulting our tribunal of inner judgment against the existing um, world. Um, now, that's obviously a great achievement because it means we're not slaves to tradition. And Hegel absolutely applauded that much as I suppose Rousseau and Kant did. Uh, but pure criticism, pure um, moral enlightenment, if you like, is purely destructive. It's iconoclastic, it's rejectionist, it's annihilating. So what it's admirable on the one hand, because it's a product of free human consciousness. I mean, that that that's, you know, morality resides in the human capacity to freely generate its own norms. Hegel took that from from um, from Kant, except in Hegel, it's a capacity that develops um, historically as um, we um, discover in Rousseauian fashion our capacity for transforming ourselves and our values. So it, it's admirable, but it's also sort of abolitionist and so potentially terrorizing. Uh, so um, that's why it's sort of has an ambivalent um, status for Hegel. Now, for him, Kantian morality followed in a long tradition of, of um, pitting what we might call pure normativity against the institutions of society. Kant himself likewise saw this resort to pure value as a revolt against fallen humanity. So it's connected to a sort of reformation mood. 
he he also thought um, to that extent he he was in a way reconceptualizing the original Christian message. Uh, for Hegel, um, Kant and Christ dissented from the world in the name of conscience, if you like. That that's that's what the philosophy of both in a way was. But the world, and this is the cru crucial Hegelian point, the world took its revenge on both of them. It took its revenge on on um, on conscience. Um, I mean, obviously, in the in the Christian case, inventing an authoritarian church um, as the vehicle for moral reformation, when the whole point of the moral reformation was to consult conscience rather than authority. I mean, that's the that's an example of um, an, a sort of Hegelian perspective on an historical irony perpetrated by Christianity. Um, so, um, so. Um, Hegel sees Kant, like Jesus, as perpetrating a purely moral revolution. And these are conducted um, um, against, you know, a program of viable political reform. And Hegel is more interested in something along the lines of a system of, um, or a project of viable political reform than a sort of um, shrieking um, moral revolution, which you might think of, um, as Christianity did think of it, as a sort of um, spiritual revolution. Hegel is not interested in spiritual revolutions disconnected from uh, social life. So he thought um, what spiritual or pure moral revolutions delivered was just empty rage or passive withdrawal. And the empty rage, the best example of that for him was the French Revolution, and the best example of passive withdrawal was uh, the sort of Kantian moral revolution. And this antithesis survives then into 19th century um, historiography as the, as the opposition between, you know, um, pietistic Germany and revolutionary France. But that's where this is where it begins. Um, and that's, you know, Hegel essentially wants to bridge this gap. Now that sort of neatly uh, leads us on to the French Revolution, which is sort of a central... Um, focus of Hegel's writings, as as he's living through it, and then uh, through to his uh, through to his death, uh, the revolution. Just to quote you here, encapsulated the moral ambitions of the age, and yet it was a violent, violent, furious failure. For Hegel, this needed explaining. Right, this is something that um, uh, the potentially transformative event of his age, but something that does not succeed. So I wonder whether we could go through a little bit more depth about yeah, how he tried to explain the revolution, why it happened, and then in what ways he thought it failed uh, and what lessons might be taken from that. Yes, well, of course, there's a lot to say about this and anything one does say about it comes against the, the background of a very dominant historiography much of which is um, post-war, post-Second World War, which sees the French Revolution as a sort of liberating consummation, or before that, a Marxist tradition, which sees it as um, a preparatory liberation. However, in, in the 1790s, most people, of course, thought the French Revolution a bit of failure. I mean, it's, um, you know, um, this view is associated, with, of course, most conspicuously with, with Edmund Burke. And Edmund Burke was an outlier, perhaps in November 1790, but he wasn't an outlier in 1794 or 1793 for that matter. Um, so even erstwhile um, 
enthusiasts became um, mid 70s to 90s uh, skeptics. Um, and this applies to Hegel also. We don't actually have any information about his immediate response to the French Revolution um, when he was, you know, 20 and 21. Um, so um, we have to go with the evidence that we have. And that is broadly speaking that Hegel believed that um, the French Revolution was a sort of empty rage for freedom uh, with an emphasis on, on empty. Um, it was disposed to prosecute um, the sort of willful aim of total reconstruction, but in the absence of any principles of accommodation, as I've sort of been implying earlier. So it was opposed to religion, opposed to property, opposed to government, opposed to rank. But but of course, if you're going to reconstruct your world, you're going to have to do, do so with levers immediately available to you. So you're going to have to be in favor of something. Um, now for Hegel, of course, uh, many people believe that things took a turn for the worst um, around about 92 or 93. But for Hegel, problems began already in the summer of 1789, where the French um, architects of the revolution failed to harmonize uh, the powers of government themselves. They, they failed to see how um, you would orchestrate, if you like. I mean, for, for Hegel, it's very important for his constitutional theory not just to have a separation of powers, Um a view we took, uh, you know, from Montesquieu and many others, but it's also essential to have an orchestration of powers. I mean, in other words, the separated powers must must, in some sense align or you've you've just got one antagonizing the other. Well, well the French, of course, developed a new legislative power, the National Assembly. And in theory, for a period, then they had an executive power, of course, the monarchy, and they would then have had um, a um, parliamentary monarchy which was in a way the original the original project. Um, but um, there wasn't satisfaction with the way in which um, the monarch might execute. So um, the assembly or parliament itself started executing. So, so you can see exactly his problem that, you know, there's a conceptual separation of powers, but but a failure to separate and orchestrate them appropriately. So so the problem began very early for Hegel. That's clearly his view. Of course, he's in favor of um, he, there's no um, sort of retrograde political nostalgia in Hegel. He's in favor of the transformation of the modern world, the rise of modern rights, this sort of indictment, the sort of fundamental indictment of feudalism. That, that That's all the case. But nonetheless, you don't need the French Revolution to deliver all that for you. And in fact, it didn't in any simple sense deliver all that. Um, so Hegel, for that reason, also the French Revolution had isolated itself from its own history. And so far as Europe had already been transformed since the 17th century. And the sort of French revolutionary fiction that, you know, one night in August, feudalism was abolished. is just obviously absurd since it had been being dismantled over the course of a number of um of centuries. So um, Hegel, you know, was stunned by the revolution. He was amazed by the sort of power of human value to transform history. But he was also um, uh, critical of the way in which that sort of enthusiastic um, moral energy could run away with itself and embark upon a project of um, pure destruction, seeking to abolish history itself, a, a project which would clearly be um, 
counterproductive. So that's roughly speaking his overarching view. Can I ask then um, what he thought was going? Why was France different? Because much of the rest of Europe is slowly moving towards constitutional monarchy. I mean, parts of the rest of Europe are moving towards constitutional monarchy. Why does France end up in a uh, a revolutionary situation at the end of the century compared to what's going on elsewhere? Yes. Um, well, Hegel believed that um, what was true actually that. Um, most Catholic powers um, in the late 18th century ended up having revolutions against their states, whereas most Protestant powers didn't, insofar as, or rather because um, the Reformation, which was, you know, had recalibrated attitudes to authority, not least ecclesiastical authority, had um, already taken place. So the rage in France was against the church state, basically. Now, one would need to unpack that and think about the elements of church and the elements of state. And there were lots of debates about this. And, in, in, you know, was it, a, was it a religious revolution, a political revolution in figures like uh, Burke and, um, and Tocqueville? Um, uh, but either way, the, the Hegelian view is that um, you need to liberate yourself from superstition and religion before you can uh, liberate yourself from deference in politics. Um, or you will end up, you know, in um, a sort of uh, embarking upon a project project of fury rather than a reconstruction. That's basically his view. That's the reason. One of the sort of um, easy accusations that uh, you will hear about Hegel is that he believed that, I mean, I'm going to distort this slightly, but just for, to provoke you, the end of history had come in the in, uh, in Germany at the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, his state was the best state and uh, everything in history had been leading up to that point. You mentioned earlier about this idea that um, he is not someone who's believing that like, sort of the stages of history incrementally improving leading up to this end point in which each, you know, previous thing builds sort of um, smoothly and um primarily in terms of uh, improvement. I wonder if you could flesh that, uh, undermine that caricature for us a little bit, please. Yes, well, there are various sources for the caricature. Um, one of them is Schelling, um, who, and you know, is a sort of friend, and Hegel is um, his understudy for a period at Jena. Uh, but they become great political rivals. And after Hegel's death, Schelling ends up in... Um, Hegel's old chair in Berlin, lecturing to generations of, of students, uh, largely rebuking Hegelianism. Uh, and in the audience, you know, it included Engels and Kierkegaard and, and, and others. And uh, the vision of, of the dialectic as this sort of um, rampaging, um, willful um, determination to... Um, overmaster history um through the concept sort of derives from uh, derives from there um and as a result of the sort of influence of um this perspective on hegel it's quite difficult to um to undo there there is there there is nothing um in egyptian culture which made it necessary 
that the uh, Christian Reformation would happen. I mean, that, that's just clear. And Hegel himself said, we must approach history. I mean, this is a quotation. We must, we must approach history empirically. There is no other way of reconstructing the past. It is an empirical um, enterprise. Um, and similarly, he, he also said that the outcome of history is not predetermined. The, 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 these are uh, clear commitments in his work. Um, nonetheless, um, he did think that um, humanity over the course of its struggle to realize um, what it meant by its own thirst for freedom, so I put it that way, um, in, in the process, it did um, improve the moral conditions of existence. Um, so that's um, unintended, if you like, I mean, from, from the beginning, and um, inadvertent, but nonetheless rational. Now, when Adam Smith says, um, you know, the, the, the coordination of economic desires as if by an invisible hand, people don't find this a remarkable statement, but um, the cunning of history, the cunning of reason is, is no different from that. That's to say, there is a benign outcome, which is a product of what Hegel called the slaughter bench of the historical process. Um, so um, it's a benign outcome for the following reasons. And in many ways, um, the burden of proof is on Hegel's critics to show us why these outcomes are bad. That is to say, constitutional government um, is preferable to despotic government. Um, science, as judging the truth of its own propositions, is preferable than charismatic leaders judging the truth of those propositions. Um, trial by jury beats um, unaccountable judgment by the chieftain. Um, marriage by choice beats uh, marriage by arrangement. Now, we could then start getting into areas which might be more controversial, but one can see that, you know, broadly speaking, um, there is something normatively compelling, not about our moral faculties as such. It's not what there were nice people now. Um, we are deeply problematic creatures and self-serving in all sorts of ways. Um, but nonetheless, we have... Um, evolved or um, constructed a moral universe, that's to say a form of life, an ethical life, um, which delivers um, systems of value which no rational person would want to sacrifice. Um, so I think the picture is a bit more like that. It's not really the end of history. I think it's the, it's, it's, the end of the phases of history in which human beings were categorized into um, different classes of human. Um, so um, I interject no there. Sorry, yeah. I should, it's just that, that just quoting something a preface here, the sort of the achievement of modernity was the termination of servile status. So one of the yeah. one of the issues that uh, a, a critic or a cynical reader of Hegel might have is that he, just to borrow your phrase there, saw the end of history as happening uh, in his state at the beginning of the 19th century, um, developed the idea of human equality and constitutional monarchy, and now we're now we're sorted. Whereas what I 
think I took you as arguing was that one that idea has emerged, it has established itself, uh, the basic idea of human equality. It's now going to play out. You're now going to see the consequences of that idea. In this is taken going beyond Hegel, but that idea will then uh, to take a Hegelian uh, view of it. I suppose the implications of that idea will play out in the succeeding centuries, as you know, as did happen over the course of the nineteenth and twentieth. That's not necessarily your argument, but I wonder whether there's any. It just seemed to fit in with this idea that he's he doesn't. It's not the cutoff point by the 1820s where we, we sort of reached our end point, uh, but that the idea of human equality is something that, yeah, its implications need are gonna are gonna play out. Yes, I think the way you put it is exactly right. I I, I would um, say two things really. It's important to have um, to bear in mind the scale of Hegel's analysis. It's not comparing, you know, the 13th century um, with the 19th century. It's comparing. Um, it's comparing seven seven thousand years of human history, such as he can. I mean, that's not to say he gets it all right, and he's perfectly understands the nature of ancient China. But it is to say that that's that's the project. And there, the contrast is very stark between societies which were um, introverted, um, tribal, self-referential and radically hierarchical insofar as thinking there's the human types and the non-human types a transition from that to thinking actually we're all human uh so it's stark uh, but you're right that it's not um we now see we're all human so all obstacles and difficulties have now been transcended on the contrary we're gonna now struggle over the meaning of what that means and of course in the 20th century um in the 20th century that um struggle has been has been brutal to the point of obviously trying the hegelian vision i mean that th th there's no doubt about that there's no point of pretending otherwise um however post 45 um we are in a sense despite previous things i've said we are in a sense all hegelians i mean no one wants to no one wants to pit um an alternative view of different human types against the post-war settlement. So there is an element of Hegel in which he thinks it's very hard to unlearn moral uh, learning. You know, it's very hard to unlearn um, the value of um, a newly discovered ethical life. And so let's just say the idea of the fundamental equality of humanity let's ju let's just call it that uh, i mean um it, it might be unlearned and that would be the end of hegelianism that that's for sure in much the same way as you know um the the earth might toast itself and that would be the end of it too these things are of course possibilities it's, it's not as though that there is um an hegelian concept which overmasters empirical history that's that's just wrong history can undo um can undo the you know our historical juncture there's there's no doubt about that but hegel does believe that there has been some kind of acquisition and to forget that acquisition um it, seem, it seems to him it's more likely that we will struggle over the meaning of the acquisition rather than lose all consciousness of the acquisition but we certainly did come close in you know 1933 to 45 and um you know for 
Hegel scholars like Emil Fackenheim, this was the refutation of Hegelianism. Uh, and I certainly take that extremely seriously. Um, but um, the refutation of Hegelianism in the name of what is then the question? And one finds oneself tacking back towards some species of Hegelian vision, actually. That's the sort of irony, if you like. Okay, I, just, I think I think the Carl Schmitt quote is in the book, isn't it? The, uh, the day that Hitler became, uh, selected Chancellor was the day that Hegelianism died. I think that's in the book somewhere. Um, yes. We should you know, just encapsulate what you what you just said. I think so. I've got one eye on the time, um, but we've still got um, the the very large question of um, why and how should we read Hegel today. So one of the sort of um, themes, especially at the front and the end of the book, uh, that you raise is about the questions you raise about what is the point of studying past celebrated thinkers? Uh, what can we gain from from the study of their works? And you know, there's something of a, a yeah, so sort of a, an excellent tour de force kind of uh, summary of what's happened to Cambridge contextualism in that penultimate and in, in the final chapter. Rather, I um, I don't I don't think we've got enough time to go into a lot of detail about that. Um, and maybe we could do that in a, in a different recording because I think a lot of people would be very interested. But let's stick with those the the, the broader questions. Then, um, what do we learn from Hegel? Is learning from Hegel a thing that we can do? Uh, where do you stand on uh, on those big questions? Right. Well, uh, difficult, to, <laughs> difficult to launch in here. I, I mean, I would say, you know, there have been various attitudes to what is political thought, the study, in other words, of past political thought, what's it supposed to do? And as you've intimated, there's been various, you know, views that it's, it's purely antiquarian or it's got... Um, um revivalist potential or or even also which i don't discuss that the past is the present uh that's to say i, I associate that view in, in a way with, with with haunt you know smith is our present sort of thing um so these views have been variously at a different stages there, of their career canvassed by by pocock skinner dunn haunt um tuck and um i suppose one way of thinking um about this i've been suggesting is to think of um hegel's own approach now for him uh for instance uh, plato is dead um i mean hegel has formed us we need to understand how that is the case but we can't literally dip into his world to extract values to guide us First, because the, the values are intricately connected to the to the, the overarching system of values. And second, because the system of values is of no avail. We we reject the system itself. That's to say, um, you know, Plato believed that individualism was just a fundamental danger and had to be overcome. Or Aristotle believed that slavery was sort of natural. Uh, well, we, we, you know, we if we can think about reviving bits of Aristotle and Plato, but we can't revive the package called Plato or, or Aristotle. And then we ask the question, well, actually, can we revive the bits? Because the holistic premise of um, of historicism is that these bits are intrinsically interlinked. So you can't really lock bits off and transport them by um, a sort of time traveling um, process into our own era. So um, I suppose I'm saying we need to understand where we are. The history of political thought is part of that understanding. It helps us to locate ourselves and so properly identify the system of value, 
with which we must operate. That's clearly what it does. I mean, it's, I think of it as not unlike um, um, Weber's um, um, Weber's second lecture, you know, in 1919, you know, sort of reconstructing the um, process of accretion by means of which we've come to be, but doing so via sort of concepts, really. Um, and I don't say it's all only about concepts, but they're clearly they're, they're clearly they're clearly vital. So um, you know, I suppose in a nutshell, um, I'm saying no one really ended up accepting antiquarianism, having nonetheless embarked upon a sort of um, something near antiquarianism in, in 1969. Then that 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 was rejected in the 70s, but rejected in, in the name of what you know. Um, I think that's um, placed scholarship in um, an uncertain position. And I think it's possible to think more coherently about the relationship between historical continuity and discontinuity um, rather than in terms of um, either we're still living in the world of Adam Smith or there's another world out there before our world, which has nuggets of treasure, which we need to recover, or even that there are very banal and empty values out there, like great generalities that we would still embrace. That's of course true, but it, it doesn't it doesn't tell us very much. I think we need you know the history of political thought to show us the process by which we have acquired, if you like, modernity and um, accept that that is the basis from which we will be thinking about our future. You know, that the past is what has constituted us. And it is that which is going to, is the only means by which we can, um, in, you know, um, think about the configuration of the future. So that's how I think of it. And then I think the, the sort of Hegelian position that's come up uh, frequently throughout our conversation is the idea, and I'm quoting you again here, the only antidote to disaffection lay with values actually to hand, which I'm, is that, is it right to read you as arguing here, this is a lesson about the possibilities, um, <laughs> so I'm going to use a Ponzi phrase, the, you know, the politics of the possible, what can you actually achieve uh, as a political actor in 2023? Um, and one of the things that is this a, a, a kernel of wisdom that we are, can extract from Hegel or be inspired by from reading Hegel that you have to get your hands dirty? You have to work with what you've got. You can't withdraw into the world of preening, you know, the purity spiral thing. You have to um, be realistic and pragmatic while also um, having uh, your, you know, your moral conscience there guiding you. Is that sort of a, um, it's kind of, it's kind of a, um, uh, you know, your politics is not necessarily important, uh, you know, maybe not want to discuss that old, but it's kind of a message of pragmatic reform versus uh, some of the revolutionary, some sort of revolutionary sentiment. And if I could get you to respond to that, but also, and um, we'll, we'll probably finish on something like this, the book, the introduction starts with the kind of absolute pessimism and fatalism of Foucauldian ways of thinking about human history, that everything is just power and exploitation. You'll just move from one form of power and exploitation to another. 
And I'm interested in what, how you see Hegel, or if you see yourself as um, you or Hegel pushing back against that kind of, yeah, so it's, it was strikingly framed as utterly fatalistic, utterly pessimistic. So yeah, there's two final plates for us to spin, please. Great. Well, I, yes, I'll take those. Um, I'll take those points together, together, Robin, and try and sort of um, produce a coherent thought about them. I would want to say it's. Um, I definitely see uh, the book and myself generally, as it were, as a university um, academic, um, not as making a, a political intervention, but rather an academic intervention. Though I do accept that some. Um, people will regard it as, as being the former. My view is uh, that not a single party political proposal can be extracted from my arguments, but but naturally philosophical positions can. I, I, I realise that for some people there's no difference between the two, but, but for me there is a difference. Um, so uh, sort of picking up on one of your important points, I would say my arguments, first of all, it's not, it's not designed to renounce criticism. I mean, all human beings do is criticize. Uh, we might want to think about generally about the role of criticism in the university. Um, but, you know, I begin by accepting, you know, from from the emergence of the human child into adolescence, that's what it does. It criticizes. But what I am challenging is aimless, what Marx called critical criticism, you know, that you just um criticize because you're criticizing so i would give a couple of examples of you know species of critical criticism that um i don't accept uh, and you're 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 right that um hegel doesn't accept them so i suppose i'm saying um hegel and i believe it's problematic so to um um critique rationality altogether as a form of surrogate domination, I mean, obviously, reason is a resource and not a means of subjection. I mean, to take my previous example, there's a difference between science and unaccountable power. And, um, you know, people who think there isn't, it seems to me that that is indeed a form of sort of rampaging cynicism that's just self-defeating. Um, you know, Kant's idea was that we could use public reason to criticise political authority. Now, is it that people are arguing that we can't do that? I mean, uh, that seems to be an, an important question. I'm sort of flabbergasted. Not that there's nothing wrong with the way in which um, Western philosophy is thought about reason and rationality. Uh, I'm quite sure there is. But but nonetheless, are people really arguing for throwing the baby out with the bathwater? This just strikes me as truly extraordinary that there's no tribunal against which you can judge powers. Actually, what they're saying and um, that's um, absurd. Com compare the um, modern institutions of um, natural science, and obviously, I don't think they're that you know the instrumental reason and its you know rampaging um, scale through the world post the scientific scientific revolution is completely unproblematic. But what I would say is, you know, the the notion of uh, empirical physical science. And its um, principles of um, justification beat um, the worldview underpinning um, the Chinese Mandarin of the ancient world. I mean, you know, um, 
um, that just seems to me patently clear. Equally, I don't accept that liberalism is intrinsically complicit with despotism. Now, I'm not saying that critics of liberalism are all saying that, and I, I'm certainly not saying there's no problem with liberalism. I mean, liberalism is substantially, you know, the liberal democratic world is substantially our world. There are massive things um, wrong with it, but that's different from saying it's collapsible into its obverse, which is a style of argument, uh, which is popular within certain sections of academic life. Now, yes, it's the case that liberal um, powers have advanced their values despotically. That has indeed happened. Look at the European empires. That's true. But that doesn't mean that we can't separate the military enforcement of value from the value of those values. Um, so um, equally, it doesn't mean that some values don't need to be executively brought about and insured. So, yes, you do have to get your hands uh, dirty, to use your phrase. Now, how to do that isn't easy. Um, no one's pretending it is. Um, but surely it's not a problem for academics to admit that there are, are dilemmas. We don't have all the answers. Uh, but as a result of not having all the answers, that, that doesn't mean we have to throw away all our tools. Um, it's it's far worse to pretend that there are no um dilemmas. So um, so I suppose that I'm saying that apart from direct partisans, I, I think that most observers would accept that there's a problem with the platitudes to which sort of neo-Foucauldian styles of argument have given rise, and to the extent to which um, these have become accepted as simple truths. But I, I would say, you know, on the contrary, knowledge is not power. Uh, social relations are not comprehensively and exclusively reducible to power relations. Uh, and power, in the conventional sense, is itself uh, uh, potentially a resource that we may have to use. Um, so the turn to Hegel is an attempt to, to complicate um, the picture, uh, to look skeptically upon the pieties that, I, that I've just criticised. Um, that's not a revival of Hegel as such. There is no Hegel package that can save us. But we still live in the age of morality, I would say, you know, the age of sort of Kantian morality. And Hegel can show us that um, um, angle of vision, uh, that this angle of vision, you know, that the moral worldview is both integral uh, and essential to our world, but also partial and limited. I think that's, you know, that's um, in a way the lever that Hegel has to offer us seeing this this potent force in our midst, you know, the rage of conscience, if you like. Um, university life is full of this, uh, partly because it's sort of misconception of its own constitutional role, I would say. Um, but it's not a bad thing, because without it, we're in trouble. Uh, but equally, if we have nothing but it, we're also in serious trouble. Uh, and Hegel is a reminder uh, of that, that uh, moral outrage has to be anchored in... Um, you know, institutional reality and um, must um, reconcile itself with some um, levers of power because no change is possible without them. All right, fantastic. Uh, your answer just then sort of uh, indicates the ambition and the range of this book. So yes, it's Hegel's World Revolutions, published by Richard Burke, Princeton University Press, October 2023. I think it's Princeton, it'll be affordable. Um, Richard, thank you very, very much indeed for your time. Well, thanks so much, Rob. That was great. Thank you.